Feeling a little claustrophobic? Is it? No? All right. All right. Um, or is that where the warm air is coming out through the hallway? <laughs> Thank you. So I did just want to recap just a little bit. I've really appreciated what David has done over the last uh, four classes. But I, I just want to hear from you all as we've read through chapter 1 in through uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. What are some themes or concepts or words that have jumped out to you so far? Paul has repeated several things over and over. What has jumped out to you all? In Christ. In Christ. Right? I have those circles, actually. And my page just got filled up. In Christ, in Him, we have these things In back in chapter 1. What else? Adoption. Adoption is a theme that he has brought up. And even though he doesn't use the word adoption, he, he will speak of us being of the same household in the, in the section we're going to read this morning. So family relationships, adoption, what else? Dead and alive. Dead and alive, yes. And that's going to be one of the, the contrasts that we're going to see quite a few of here in, in chapter 2. To the praise of his glory. <clears throat> to the praise of his glory. Um, and, and we'll talk about this in, in a moment. But that is almost, that's one of the potential thesis statements that you could find in this book. What's the point of it? What's the point of all of this? Um, why go through the explanation of what Christ has done and encourage us in chapters 4 through 6 about what we should do? To the praise of his glory. Could be one of those thesis statements. What else? Praise and works. Grace and works, right? Making that that distinction, but also they're they're not so uh, uh, opposed as we might think. He ties in the heavenly places a couple of times. Yes, and he just yeah he discusses the heavenly places and what the incredible things that God has done through Christ in chapter one, what that will do uh, to show off God's. In, incredible nature in the heavenly places. Um, there's an idea of it's it's introduced in uh, verse nine of chapter one. This mystery, and that will be explained further when we get into chapter three. It's going to be mentioned over and over in chapter three, but again in chapter five and six. What is this mystery? Um, so he kind of does this fun little tease in verse nine of chapter one, along with the idea of adoption. <clears throat> This idea of us now having access to the same inheritance. There is something that's given to the children of God that, that we now have access to. So this is helpful for me because I have a tendency to, and, and, and the nature of the pacing of our class, we're only doing 10, 11, 12 verses at a time. We tend to kind of focus down into a verse and I have a tendency to kind of forget the the scope and the, the outline um, of the chapter, but also of the book. So if you were to outline this letter, six chapters, how, how could we potentially break down this, this letter? You divide it into two parts. Okay. The first three chapters, what God has done. The uh, last three chapters, what we are expected to be. Absolutely, yeah. A very clear first three chapters, last three chapters, God's uh, 
God's work and what He's done, and now what we are are supposed to do. How else might we break it down? There's not really a wrong answer here. Did you, Brad? Did you have your? Uh, that's exactly what I was going to say. Okay. The the calling in the first three chapters and the walk in the last three chapters. Yes, walking according to the calling, right? And so, yeah, breaking it down um, in that way. Um, I think Justin broke it down. The call of God in Christ is chapters one through three, and then chapters four through six is walk walking worthy of that call. Um, we've been commissioned. We've been uh, set to task um, in this way, and and we need to to walk according to that. Someone gave me uh, a six chapter, like six point breakdown, but again, you can see the the same the same sort of breakdown. Uh, there's richness in Christ in chapter one, oneness in Christ in chapter two. There's a privilege that we have in Christ in chapter three, and then four, five, and six are. The, the life that we must live based on what we've just covered in one through three. So life in the body, life in the family, and life in the trenches. Because there's this battle army kind of imagery used there. Um, and then someone else broke it down this way, and I thought this, this was kind of neat. That one through three is the idea of we've been seated. And that has been discussed a couple of different times. Uh, God raised Christ up and then sat him down at his right hand. He promises to do the same thing for us, to raise us up and sit us down. Um, chapters 1 through 3 is kind of that whole concept. We've been seated with Christ. And what is our identity in Christ? Chapter 4 through 6.13 is the walk. And again, that thesis statement, walk worthy of the calling and live out the gospel and then chapter 6, uh, the second part of chapter 6, is standing firm in the face of any spiritual opposition. Any other ideas as far as outlining this book? I think it's just helpful as we go through chapters and verses that we go, okay, what, what section are we in? What's the point here? Is he trying to get us to better understand God and, and what he's done through Christ? Or is this the section where it's it's really heavily on, you already know what I've laid that foundation, now I want you to live this certain way. Um, so I did want to share, um, and David talked about this, I really appreciated his, his presentation of it, that a case could be made that the letter to the Ephesians um, wasn't necessarily made to these people. There are some things about it that, that seem, in my opinion, a bit impersonal compared to, say, his letters to the Corinthians. Um, perhaps it was a more general letter that was meant to be shared with that region. Either way, the issues that the Christians were, were faced with in the city of Ephesus were very similar in, throughout that region. And so what, what were the struggles? What were the challenges that, that they were having? I want to share a, a short portion of a documentary that we just recently produced. Uh, it's about the, the seven churches of Revelation and the letter written to them, Ephesus being one of those cities. But this section will help us, I think, better understand the, the cultural differences and pressures of that city the the religious and social differences that they were experiencing during that time. And so as we watch this, when we consider how Paul described this group in the first three verses of chapter 2, you remember he says that you were dead in trespasses and sins 
Um, they were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Um, they were children of wrath. You used to be this way. I, I hope that this video helps us understand potentially what he's referring to, the the pagan idolatry and the the emperor worship that was occurring in this city. And he's saying, you used to be in among that, but now you've been called to, to something better and something different. Um, so we're going to play this four or five minute video. So by the time of Paul and John in the first century, because of silting, the harbor had significantly decreased in size and so it was reached by this narrow channel coming in from the Aegean Sea. The archaeologists have documented at least 25 to 30 temples and sanctuaries to the various gods and goddesses in the Greek pantheon here in the city. The city of Ephesus being the temple warden or temple keeper of Artemis. Now we have the merger of that with imperial cult worship. So what can we see that would help us understand the culture of the imperial cult here in Ephesus? So we're walking down on the terrace for the state agora, and over to our left-hand side, we see the platform for the later imperial cult temple that was built under Domitian and then later rededicated to his father and brother. But this is part of the valley, and so the placement of these imperial cult temples was very important too. Location, 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 and so this made a very much a statement in the city of Ephesus, who is Lord? You'll see one of the heads from the statue. So these supersized emperors mm. that ruled over this city. You really get a perspective as you oh, stand yeah. in front of this monumental structure here, and everyone would see that imperial so, cult yeah. temple. The reason for the emperor worship was not religious; it was political. They were using that system to keep their empire together. And anybody who wouldn't offer incense to the emperor was looked upon as a bad citizen and a dangerous one. We're looking at a beautiful fountain dating to the early 2nd century. And the leading citizen dedicated this to the emperor Trajan. So any idea what that round thing is? No. <laughs> uh, the ancients actually understood that the world was round. And so it's the globe, the globus. He's got his foot on it. Well, yeah, yeah. Right, right foot showing domination. Again, we're looking at symbolism, how important it was yeah. of the Roman power in the empire, especially here in the city of Ephesus. I don't think it's an overstatement to talk about how impressive it is to walk <laughs> the streets of Ephesus. All along the way, you would have had these statues and these busts. You would have seen all of these idols placed there. It just would have been overwhelming to walk that street and to see how prolific idolatry was. And it was just in your face. Then you tie into that the idea of Artemis and her temple that would have been there. When you hear that, you think back to Acts and you think about the riot that took place in Ephesus. 
because of the influence of Paul, the statues of Artemis or Diana, that their sales had gone down. It was just everywhere. It permeated their whole culture. To walk the streets and think about what would that have been like as a Christian? <coughs> to have a temple dedicated to a deity or to an emperor, and you didn't have that. Like, you didn't have a physical temple. You didn't have a statue of your God. You didn't have anything like that to be, to try to impress people in some emotional way. But when you read through Revelation 4 and 5, we are ushered into the throne room of God. We're given a picture of God seated on his throne, of Jesus walking into this place where these living creatures and 24 elders are praising God and praising Christ. So Jesus is trying to give his disciples an awareness of the spiritual reality that we do have a temple and that each of us is a part of that and that God dwells in us. We do have something and it's real and it lasts and it's not going to fall down and it's not going to be left in ruins. So it was interesting to me studying through Ephesians. Obviously we made this based on Revelation, but that same trouble that the Christians would have been having of where, where's my temple? We're surrounded, you know, the Greeks have dozens here just in this one city. Um, where's my temple? And the section that we're going to read here in Ephesians chapter 2 will we'll start to answer that question and give them um, part of the spiritual reality. So uh, probably sometime uh, in, in an upcoming class, there's another section of this this video that I think would be helpful for us to see. Um, but I hope that that helps us try, try to put ourselves in that culture. And you think of the different people that were coming in and out of that city. He mentioned it right at the very beginning and David pointed it out to us as well. It used to be a port city. So ships were, were coming right up to that. The water has since, because of silting and other things, has since moved, uh, you know, miles out. But the, the differences of people coming in from all over the world, congregating in that city and then you think about what that church must have been like made up of all different kinds and how could they work together and be unified so as we consider those things uh do i have a a volunteer to read um ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 sarah therefore remember that formerly you the gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments or contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Thank you. So it's it's two questions. It's a big question. But how does Paul contrast their spiritual condition in this chapter? And how was that change accomplished? We already we already talked about one of those contrasts being we were dead, but now we've been made alive. We see that in verse 5. But this chapter is full of those types of contrasts. What what are some of those? Yes. Yeah. So there was a period of time where they did not enjoy the same rights and privileges as the Commonwealth of Israel, but now they've been included in that. What else? Foreigners and now citizens. Yeah. So they used to be illegal aliens, right? And now they have all the rights of citizenship. What else? Strangers and without hope, and now they are part of God's household. Ooh, that's a good one. I didn't even have that one. Right. They were strangers and had no hope, but now, yeah, now they're inside the household, sharing the same uh, joys of the of the family. Yeah. Related to that, they were outside the wall, and now they are part of the temple. Yes. Okay, so that's interesting. They were outside the wall, and now they're part of the temple. Um I, I had also thought of the, that the wall itself was was broken down, and then Christ built something else, right? Yeah. Yes, there used to be two peoples, right? Two two distinct men, um, as far as those who who were given these revelations of God. But now, no, He's making us all one together, and that's in uh, verses fourteen and fifteen. Without God. Right, so they were without God, but now they are with together with God, unified. So, what about the second part of this question? How how did that happen? You all used to be this way, dead and alienated and far off. You were two, and you were broken. But what happened to change this? And there, there's a there's a term here, a verse here, um, actually two of them in this chapter. You raised your hand back there, but you're not sure. Through the cross, right? So who was on the cross, right? So there's a verse earlier, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus. Where have we seen that that before, this, this idea of but now or but? Things used to be this way, but something happened. And even the end of verse 13, it says, by the blood of Christ. Right. Christ came and through his blood, through the cross, changed, he changed the game here. He fundamentally altered our position with God. And 14 says, for he himself is our peace. Yes. He was the one to to have done it. Yeah, Jill. And um, he put to death 
the enmity, which is defined as the law and commandments. Yes. And again, we'll get to this in, in a minute, but you remember in chapter one, all of the, all of the verbs, all of the action words, God did this and then he did this and through him he did this and this and this, and he's still doing that here in chapter two. So there are all these different ways that Paul uses to describe what Christ did, the action words associated with him by dying on the cross. I do want us to step back, back to the section that David covered for us. Back in verse 4, you see this idea again. In verses 1 through 3, remember, he's describing the despicable, terrible situation that they were in. They were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. And you could do a whole sermon on things used to be this way, and, and we were headed in this direction, and there was nothing we could do to fix it, but God made this possible. Um, so we see that in verse 4, and then essentially we see that again in verse 13. It used to be this way, and God could have stepped back and just let it. But he stepped in and did these things for us through Christ. Um, so I, you, you have already mentioned a, a few of these that I, I didn't have. But I, I feel almost justified. Paul does it, so sometimes I do it, where I'm trying to exemplify a point. Oh, it's like this. And if I don't see the audience getting it, oh, okay, well, then it's like this. Oh, it's like this. You've got to get it. You've got And he's just over and over again saying, look, things are different now. It's like being dead, but now you're alive. It's like being broken, but now you're built. It's like being strangers, but now you're citizens. It's. And I don't mind the fact that he just, he wants us to understand the incredible active, powerful pursuing that, that God does uh, to have a relationship with us. Thoughts on this section? And I say this section. I'm not necessarily going to go verse by verse because it's all kind of one one thought here. Sometimes that's that's helpful and necessary, but I feel like he's making one big point here in 11 through 22 that strings together. So I'm kind of taking it as a whole. Uh, but any ideas on, on this particular concept of contrasts? Yeah, Brad. Um, I, I'm reminded that this is only one half of the conversation. Um, kind of like when you're listening on a, a, a phone and you can only hear one side. Mm. And so you're trying to guess what the other person is saying. Uh, it seems like in here... One of the the themes is how the two were are are now one. Yes, and how um, there must have been on the other side of the conversation um, some conflict and friction with Jews and Gentiles living in the same city. Um, the cultures clashing and trying to get along. Yeah, um, and so that's that's just one of those themes here. Um, you know, that, that, that seems to be present. And it's a really good thing that they figured that all out in the first century and we don't have to deal with that anymore. Like they figured out that mankind can just live together. I see it in our country. We've seen it on the news. Different groups, and maybe they're ethnic groups, maybe they're religious differences. 
I think it's fair to say that whatever we are currently experiencing in our generation would have been even worse in the first century. Because you had, among those ethnic groups, the Jews who believed that they were far superior to everyone else, which was never God's intention. He said he chose them, they were his special people, they had special privileges, but God never intended them to then mistreat everybody else. That that is what had started to happen. And you think about Ephesus was not predominantly Jewish. And you've got a Jewish man, Paul, coming in, and, and, and you think about the riot that occurred there. You've got some Jew hundreds of miles away coming in and stirring the pot with his Jewish ideas, turning the world upside down, messing with our religions, and trying to get us to believe that all these gods that we've been showing honor to aren't anything, including Artemis. How dare he? And you think about the, the powder keg that would have existed in that city, and not just Ephesus, but all the other cities. And yet Paul is saying, it, it's not supposed to be that way anymore. As far as those of us who are now Christians, there is not this dividing wall of hostility anymore. We are part of the same household. We're part of the same structure. We are all citizens which would have been another big issue. And, and we're dealing with that in our country too. Well, they're not citizens, therefore they're less than. Um, some were Roman citizens and some were not. And Paul says, look, we're all citizens now. And it's this idea of a word that is used several times in this section of peace. So based on what we've read thus far, what kind of peace was achieved? And how was it accomplished? I find it interesting in the 20s and 22 how he talks about um, that they have the same foundation. Um, you know, it would have been easy to say, well, we Greeks have the foundation of the gods and we Jews have the foundation of the law. And he says, no, you both have the apostles and the prophets. So you you both have the law and what you're hearing today. Yeah. Um, and it all culminates on Jesus being the cornerstone and that that is what allows God to dwell with us. Right. And, and yeah, the, the idea that the apostles, many of whom were still living at this time, teaching and preaching and, and doing their best to spread that word, and then the prophets, and, and I assume what he's meaning are the Old Testament prophets, but perhaps even the current prophets, because there were other prophets that we know about in, in the New Testament. And he said, those are, those are the foundation that you all have, and it's not distinct. The Gentiles have one and the Jews have it. It's all the same, right? Did I see a hand? Yeah. yeah. 15 and 16, he's talking about uh, making peace in verse 16. And in one body reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. That's the basis of the peace right there. Yeah. And so peace between what what parties? There are two sets of there's the Jews and the Gentiles. They used to be one people, then they were set apart, the Jews were set apart. So now they're coming back to be just people, and Mm -hmm. then that people, that person, is reconciled with God. Aha. 
which yeah. goes back to Eden. Correct. Because we can't truly have peace between any of those parties unless we have them together, right? And uh, is it First John that talks very much about you can't say you love God but hate your brother. You can't say, oh, I've got peace with God, but I just have a really hard time getting along with my brothers and sisters. They're just, we're all so different, and I just have a hard time. Like, it can't be that way. We have peace, it says. We are reconciled both, in verse 16, to God. So that peace has been created between us and God. But it's also a peace that, as we recognize, we we, we have this this common uh, peace with God. Therefore, we should all be one body and unified together. I see all sorts of hands here. I said something wrong or... Brian? Uh, I, I heard someone illustrate it like this, that um, if all the spokes in a bike wheel are fitted into the hub and the rim the right way, they're going to have to be arranged with each other correctly. It's impossible for them not to. Mm-hmm. So if we see ourselves out of alignment with each other, then there must be something going on with the rim and the hub. Right. With our relationship with God. Yeah. And in fact, Paul, uh, Paul, John says that if we think we're doing that, but we're not actually having peace with one another, we are liars. You know, I can't think I'm connected to the hub, but I can do it separately from the other. You're right. That's a great, that's a great illustration. Sarah? Well, and the key there, again, of everything is the cross. We Correct. can't have the peace with God, we can't have the peace with the others um, if we don't depend upon Jesus in what we get in the cross. Right. And so it is tempting for us to think I have a really hard time getting along with my brothers and sisters some uh, sometimes. So what can I do to, to make sure that we do that? And we forget Christ has already done the thing. That's what he, he, he took time at the beginning of this chapter to let us know that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not anything we did so that we, we don't need to boast about it or, or take the responsibility on ourselves to figure out a way. How do I fix this enmity between myself and, and my brothers? If we just take the time to remember it, God already has done it through Christ. And you think about, you keep bringing up the cross as, as rightly you should, the blood that he was willing to shed, the body that he was willing, it says that he was willing to break down in his flesh. He was willing to destroy his own body. Surely I can learn to speak kindly and act in a unified manner between my brothers and sisters. Yes, Last sir. thing, because I know I'm talking too much. Fine. But, but it seems to me it's not reneging on our responsibilities to depend on the cross. Correct. It's the humility to realize that I can't do it without him. Correct. Yeah, and I do I do want to be careful because, you know, uh, surely we know people who want to take this chunk in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and say, this is all I need. I just need to remember I'm saved by grace through faith. It's not based on works. Hallelujah. That if that's all that Paul meant for us to have, he would have written those 10 verses and then we would have been done. This is setting up. Remember, chapters one through three is setting up why we must live a certain way and do certain things. Um, and so don't forget that he's building a point 
and getting ready to give us the application, but let's not just focus on the point and think that's all there is to it. And I think it takes true humility to realize that I can't do it right. just by myself. Yeah. Okay, I'm done. That, no, that's fine. That's fine. So somebody... Ha- how would you define, he uses this word, reconcile us both in verse 16. How would you define that word? It's not a common word, at least in my vocabulary. You want to reconcile something. Brad, it is a common word in your vocabulary. What do you mean when, okay, I'm, I'm doing these taxes and we've got to reconcile these. What does that mean? Yeah. So um, from an accounting standpoint, there uh, there are two things that we're comparing, and we've got to make some kind of adjustment on one of them in order to make them agree. Right. Um, so I've got <coughs> this system over here that's telling me what my what the government has spent, and I've got this system over here that's also telling me what the government spent on certain operation. And if they're different, I've got to figure out why and and reconcile. I've got to bring those into agreement. Something's got to change. Right. Right? Because they they are not going to work together unless one or both sides change. Right. And uh, one thing I was going to say was the it says that he created in himself one new humanity, is the way the NIV reads in Hmm. verse 15, Mm -hmm. out of the two. And um, I think that just points out how far apart these two groups were. They were like two different humanities. Mm. Like they weren't even part of the same group. They were so far apart that, well, there's your hu- your humanity and then there's our humanity. Like almost just two, two races, obviously. But um, I don't know. I think that just points out how much reconciliation yeah. needed to occur. I think of like Mordecai and Haman and how how much they despised each other. Um, yeah. and, and that's just kind of an anecdotal uh, reminder there. But. but again, you don't have to look that far back in our own history to know that there was a period of time where we treated a specific race or races of people and said they were subhuman. They were not of equal value to this particular group. And that's nonsense. God says, back in the first century, he's, I, I've done away with that. I've broken the things down. There should be no hostility. You're now one. And it's not that that didn't occur until the first century. That's the way he made it from the very beginning. And the story of the Bible is God trying to get us back to where he, he meant for us to be all along. Um, and so we do Christ a disservice when we try to, and I'm getting ahead of my notes here, but we're here. When we try to continue to group ourselves in categories, and we do that in our society by races, by colors, by cultures, by ages, by social economic classes, and, and Christ says that that's not the way this is supposed to be. I've already done away with all of those things um, and made one new, I like that, one new humanity. Mine says one new man, one new mankind, right? Um, and so the idea of that that word reconcile, it's, it's according to change. 
You have to restore to harmony or settle or resolve something to make it congruous, to make it consistent. Something's got to change. And what this section lets us know is that God is, is, is right and pure and good. God's standard is not shifting. God was not the one who needed to change. We were, we were disjointed here. We were the ones that needed to be reconciled. And so it says that he reconciled us. The change had to occur in us so that we could come back to the standard of God. And that was done through Christ and the cross and his blood and his body. Um, and that gives us, not only gives us peace, but he, he, is, he is using the, these different illustrations to describe the idea of unity. I'm not sure that he actually uses the word here in this section, but that's what he's describing, right? So how is the unity that we have in Christ described in this section? We've talked about a couple of them already. And why are these useful to consider? So in what ways does he describe the unity that we all should have? And let's go through these quickly. He's put to death the enmity. Right? Um, of, like of God's household. It's not God's households. It's household, one yep. household. Yep, verse 19. We are all now um, members of the household of God. Verse 18. We both have access to one spirit to the Father. Yep. We all have the same access. We all have the same access. Verse 13, he says that he's brought us near. Verse 19, fellow citizens. Yep, fellow citizens. And then he's he's building, pun intended, to the, the illustration in verses 20 and 22 of the temple. Fitted together. Fitted together. Yes. Grow, grow, not only like fitted together, but then growing together. Yes, building on each other, right? Which is interesting because when I read temple, I immediately go, okay, well, he's referring to the temple in Jerusalem, you know, because these were not Jews, not primarily. And so when he says temple, harken back to the video that we watched, again, it comes back to, well, where's, where's our temple? Artemis has got one and, you know, Domitian's got one and Trajan's got one. And they said, at least right now, they've uncovered between 20 and 25 different temples in that one city. And he's saying, in answer to your question, well, where is our temple? What What's the answer? You are. You are. And so, look, these things were impressive. Even what, what the ruins that remain, and we had to 3D generate it to show you, please understand, it was really impressive. Even what remains is still impressive. But you think about, at the time, they're looking at those, wow, we don't have anything like that. That's so amazing. And Christ is trying to get them to understand, Paul is trying to get them to understand, actually, you being the temple, and you being the temple, and us being the temple is something that 2,000 years from now, they're not going to be looking at the ruins of this thing. It will keep living and keep being built upon and will last, unlike the temple of Artemis, unlike the temple to Trajan, um, we are the temple. 
constantly being built together in a place where not some false deity is going to dwell, but we are being built into a place where God will dwell in us. And that's impressive. Lloyd. It fits with Jesus trying to explain to them, stop thinking of the physical. And he was speaking more of the spiritual. <clears throat> and these things, these man-made things, is not yeah. what's going to sustain you, but yeah. this being in him. Yeah. So I listed, again, a few of those, but you've already brought up uh, more than I did. So Jeremy, in in the episode of Bible Study Without Borders, um, pertaining to this particular section, said that if Christ was willing to go through such humiliation to remove these superficial distinctions between us, then why should I hang on to those and reinforce those? So if Christ was willing to break down his own flesh and allow his own body to be destroyed, to remove the things that hindered peace, peace between us and God and our fellow man, yet our society tries so desperately to reconstruct these barriers, to define us into groups and classes and identities that work to undo the incredible unification that Christ accomplished in us. God is trying to build a temple more impressive and more lasting than anything that has ever been constructed. And yet we are so stuck on, and I say we as our culture, but I think sometimes even we among God's people are so stuck on putting us into groups and sometimes unknowingly setting a hierarchy of importance or value that God never intended for us to do. I want to pull this up and ask any questions. We do this at 1020. Um, any questions about this section or comments that, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's do Phil first. And building on the idea of the temple, the temple in which others can draw near to God. To yes. His glory. Uh, I mean, that was the purpose of the temple was to draw those in so that they could see God more clearly. Yes. Absolutely. There was another hand here. Don had a comment earlier. Yeah. The church is Christ's body. And individual believers become members of the church, which is the body. Right. Which is your temple. Right. Am I correct, Tom? Yes, absolutely. It's it's another way of uh, of Paul describing the same thing. We understand what it means to have a body. And we understand that if I start taking that body and separating its pieces, it's not going to be a very effective body. Um, and he does that, obviously, in, in another one of his epistles. He said it, it's ridiculous to think that, that one piece of the body could say, I'm more important than this piece of the body. It, it only functions if it's all unified together. Um, and obviously, he will get to more of the application... Of this right now, again, he's laying groundwork. He's he's describing the calling, but I do want us to to think about. Sometimes we hear in uh, in our culture or on memes on Facebook that Jesus loves us so much that he'll take us as we are, which is absolutely one hundred percent correct. Right, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But the point that he is building to. And he's halfway through it. The point that he's building to is Jesus loves us so much 
that He'll take us as we are, but He loves us too much to leave any of us that way. <laughs> the idea is not, you're, you're all good because Christ has done this thing, and so let's all just be together and unified, and you can live however you want, and you can identify however you want. No. Christ called us, and remember, we're building to this four through six section, therefore we must live according to that call. Katrina? I think it's really important to think about that, you know, he says, okay, you you all chose the slums of sin, and Christ did this amazing thing by making us this impressive temple. So what should you do with that? Go back to the slum? No. No way. Yeah. You, I think that just leads to four through six of well, of course you would do all this stuff. Yes. You, why would you not want to do all this stuff? Because he's already lifted you up so high. Yeah. And notice we go back to to uh, in verse three of chapter two. He's describing the condition of these people, but in verse three he actually says, "Among whom we all once." Paul groups himself. In that same group. So he's not saying, oh, you Gentiles lived this way and that was really despicable. But God saved you. He groups himself, this Pharisee of Pharisees, this Hebrew of Hebrews, and he even recognized, look, there was a period of time where I was living in the slums too. And we were all in that condition, but now we've been called to something greater. I'm going to show two minutes of one of these episodes of Bible Study Without Borders, and that should should wrap us up and lead us into the section we'll cover in chapter 3. And that didn't play. Alright, we're going to do it this way then. And the guy... Well, 1530. Over in First Peter, um, the idea that together we are being made into the place that God lives. Yeah. God is present. And... I'm just another I'm just another stone in that wall. Right. And the guy next to me is a stone in that wall. Despite our differences. Yeah. We we've been laid on the same foundation, the same cornerstone, and God is present here. And like you said, we are being made, verse twenty two, yes. in him you also are being built. The work's not done. Nope. We're still being fitted together. And and part of the idea of the temple was for for the Ephesians. They're used to, you know, Diana or Artemis. They sure. could look to the temple and say, Well, you know, well, where does Artemis live? Well, she's over there. Yeah. Um, the Jews would have said, where does God live? Go point to Jerusalem. He's, he's over there in the temple. And where do people point today? And they ought to be able to point to Christians, the church, the universal church, who are working together in this way that really doesn't make sense. What do you guys have in common? Yeah. But because they love each other, because we are united with one another, they can say, that's where God lives. I'm a part of the same building that Paul was a part of and these first century saints. And anyone who becomes a Christian after Right. We all belong to the same building. 
and God is there. And, and Paul is calling us to remember that yeah. because knowing that motivates us to do all sorts of beautiful things for the glory of God that others would point to and say, wow, isn't God amazing? In relationship with each other. That's right. Yeah. So the, maybe the first chapter really helped us think about who we are, what our new identity is now that we're in Christ and all the spiritual blessings we received in Christ. And then in chapter 2, he's humbly pointing out, you're not the only one. We are together in this. We're together in in this. And so he's trying to help me think differently about the Christians around me. And most specifically, within my local group, that's who this was written to. So within our local congregations, be thinking about, we all belong together. Despite our differences, we all belong to the the same building. And, uh, and man, now you just want to flow into chapter three, um, where he starts talking about the mystery of this gospel. So what, what is this gospel? And he gets, it gets into another purpose statement. Yeah. Um, but we'll save that. We'll save that for chapter three. So on Wednesday, we will be studying chapter three, verses one through 13. And if it's helpful to you, you can follow this link or you can scan that QR code and find the corresponding video. It's a 15, 20-minute video of Jeremy and Justin discussing that section, and that's what we'll study together on Wednesday. Thank you.